0: Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host Allison Colley. Hello, and welcome to this the seventh episode of the Employment Law and HR podcast. I'm Alison Colley and thanks very much for listening. For those of you who have not listened before, if this is your first time, thanks very much for tuning in. I'll just give you a little bit of a rundown very quickly about me so that you know who I am and, and why I've got the experience to talk to you. For those of you who haven't listened in before, um, thanks very much for Tuning in now. I hope you find this podcast to be helpful for you. Before I start and go into the content about the podcast, I'll just give you a little bit of background about me and about the reasons for this podcast. I'm an employment solicitor um, qualified in the UK, and I've been working as an employment solicitor for approximately eight years. About a year ago, I set up my own practice, the Real Employment Law Advice, providing advice to employers and employees on all aspects of employment law. The reason for setting up my own firm, or one of the reasons for setting up my own firm, was to be able to provide useful, informative content to employers and employees without the need for them to have to go through a um, a lawyer, essentially. I don't see why you should have to pay lots of money to get access to Really sort of basic straightforward advice and hence the reason for this podcast the podcast is designed to bring you some changes or um, some updates or some information that I think would be useful for you as an employer about employment law um, as well as a best practice hr tip and I try to aim to do the podcast about every two weeks and it's usually between fifteen and 20 minutes so it's not too long enabling you to get a quick update on what's happening and keep you informed now in today's episode of the podcast I'm going to give you my featured content which is about a change to the law which is taking place on the 1st of October 2014 now with employment law generally it changes twice a year there are um, in changes are introduced in April normally and then in October and this October is no different although it's fairly quiet I have to say in terms of um, various changes. Now I'm going to focus in on one particular change which is in relation to antenatal appointments. If you want to have a look at the other changes that are taking place on the 1st of October including the new national minimum wage rates then you can have a look on my website adviceforemployers.co.uk and check out the show notes for this podcast. And then in my best practice tip I'm going to talk to you about appraisals. I'm going to talk to you about antenatal appointments. Now if I just give you a bit of background... Pregnant employees um, have had the right to attend antenatal appointments for several years and as a pregnant employee they're entitled to have time off work during working hours for the purpose of obtaining antenatal care and that should be paid time off. What um, constitutes an antenatal appointment um, is not actually defined by the law but it's basically when the nurse or a doctor or medical practitioner decides that um, a pregnant person has to have some care where a pregnant person has to have some antenatal care. So that could be something like um, uh, health visitor appointments, midwife appointments, hospital appointments. It could be attending um, classes, that sort of thing. And in order to exercise that right, all the employee, the pregnant employee need to do is um, inform her employer about the date and time of the appointment. And with the exception of the first appointment, um, the employee doesn't have to show any evidence of the antenatal appointments. In a nutshell, that's what the law is in relation to antenatal appointments for pregnant employees. They are entitled to have time off for antenatal care, they do not have to show evidence other than in the first appointment and they can have um, unlimited time off uh, on a paid basis. In order to qualify for the right to have um, paid time off for antenatal care, a pregnant employee doesn't have to have any particular length of service, it's a qualifying from the first day of employment. In the event that an employer refused to allow an employee to take time off for antenatal care or refused to pay them for that time, they could bring a claim within the employment tribunal. If they're successful in their complaint in the employment tribunal, they could receive compensation which is equivalent to the amount that the employee was entitled to receive for the time off. And from the 1st of October, this compensation will be increased to twice the amount that she was entitled to receive when taking time off. In addition to this compensation, Um, for the failure to allow them to take the time off or to be paid for it. Employees have the right not to be treated to their detriment because they've exercised their right to take antenatal care time off. What you need to know as an employer of a pregnant employee is that they are entitled to have some time off, that it would be um, foolish to refuse them time off or to treat them any differently because they are taking antenatal appointments off. As I said, this is the position in relation to pregnant employees and that's been the position for a number of years. What's actually happening on the 1st of October is a change in the law to allow fathers or partners of pregnant women to have the right to time off to attend the antenatal appointments as well. This isn't um, a paid right so I have to make that clear to you now for those employers who might be thinking oh my god another expense that we have to incur losing an employee during the day and also having to pay them for it. Well that's not the case with the father or the partner of the pregnant woman the time off doesn't have to be paid. So that's one thing to know. And it's not unlimited. They're only allowed to have um, two appointments off um, at uh, any one time in relation to that particular pregnancy. And they can ha- only have up to six and a half hours off for that one appointment. So the maximum amount of time that an employee could take under this new legislation is um, 13 hours um, during the course of the pregnancy and that would only be taken in two stints anyway. As I said before the right applies to employees and it applies to any employee who has been employed from the very first day of their employment so there's no qualifying period for them to be employed in order to be able to take that time off. Although there's no qualifying period of time in which they have to be employed they do have to be in a qualifying relationship with the woman who is expecting the child. And so that is their husband, um, their civil partner, in the case of same-sex relationships. If they live with the woman so that's a long-term partner. Um, Again, that could be a heterosexual or same-sex relationship. Or they are the expected child's father. So if it's the child's father and the child's father isn't married to the mother or living with the mother, they would still qualify. Or they are the potential applicant for a a parental order in relation to a child um, who's expected to be born to a surrogate mother. So if they are a parent of a surrogate child and they're expected to obtain a legal order that they will become the child's Parent after their birth. So those are the people that would qualify for time off. If an employee wishes to make a request for time off, there's no set formula, but you can request them to fill out a particular document and provide you with information so it's advisable to stipulate that they provide you with confirmation that they're in a qualifying relationship with the pregnant woman or the expected child that they are taking the time off for the purpose of antenatal appointments and that the appointment has been made through um, the advice of a registered doctor midwife or nurse and to give you the date and time of the appointment that's just common sense really but I would suggest that you ensure if your employees want to take time off in these circumstances that they provide you with that information so you can be sure that they meet that criteria. Now as an employer you can refuse an employee um, time off to accompany a woman at an antenatal appointment but only where it is reasonable for you to do so. I would think very carefully before you do refuse to let them have the time off for an antenatal appointment in these circumstances as they would then have the right to claim complain to an employment tribunal and your reasons would be questioned as to why you refused that um, appointment. And of course, they would still be allowed to do it at another time. If an employee is successful in their complaint to an employment tribunal where you've refused to allow them to have time off, then the compensation is twice the hourly rate the period when the employee would have been entitled to be absent had you um, granted them the time off. So you know it's not going to cost you a lot in terms of compensation let's be honest but it will cost you in terms of time, staff morale and um, just the general um, feeling towards you as their employer. If you want to get the best out of your staff it's always best to be reasonable and unless there is really no way that you can allow them to have that time off I would always suggest that you try to accommodate their request as with a pregnant woman um, employees also have the right not to be treated to their detriment or dismissed because of their request to have time off to attend an antenatal appointment with their with a pregnant woman and in some cases it could be automatically unfair dismissal if you treat them to their detriment or dismiss them because of their request so you shouldn't treat them any differently just because they've made that request to you and they're trying to exercise their legal rights. So to summarise what the actual position is in relation to this new piece of law, it gives certain employees who have relationships with pregnant women the right to time off to attend two antenatal appointments for up to six and a half hours each time. Now you might be thinking, what's this all about? Why have they brought this in? Because we're quite reasonable with our employees anyway, we let them have time off when they need to, if their wife or partner need to go to an appointment and they ask us, we would say that they could have that time unpaid or we'd let them make up the time later on. Well, the reason for the government introducing this change is because it's part of their programme of trying to get fathers involved from an early stage. For those of you who have listened to previous podcasts, you'll know that we talked about the paternity rights earlier and part of the government's strategy at the moment is to try and equal things out so that fathers take on more of a role in a baby's life um, and a child's life from the very outset. In introducing this new right for fathers, the government have also tried to limit the cost to employers by not including any specific uh, format for making a request and no specific procedure. Um, And they've also said that it's unpaid. So, you know, the fact of the matter is, uh, actually, you might not get too many employees taking six and a half hours off on two occasions unpaid because it is unpaid. Research um, currently shows that about a third of fathers still don't take any time off before the birth of their child. I'm not sure how many more will take advantage of this, as I say, because it's unpaid, um, but we'll have to wait and see. The Department for Business Innovation and Skills have produced some um, answers to some questions that employers have raised. Um, and I just thought I would talk through briefly a couple of these because I thought they were quite interesting And there's certainly questions that I hadn't thought of. One of the questions is, what happens um, if you have a man who works for you, who is um, an expectant father with two different women at the same time? Now... I'm not sure how likely this is to happen but if it does happen what they've said the guidance says is that um, they can take time off to attend appointments for each pregnant partner as long as they meet the qualifying requirements. So that is to say if a um, a man is the father of two children even if he doesn't live with either of the uh, pregnant uh, women he could still take off two appointments to attend with each of those so he could have four separate time off during that pregnancy period. Now as they point out, they don't expect this to happen very often and I'm sure it probably won't happen too often with you but it's something to take note of. Another question that, that's um, set out in the document is um, who would qualify for the right to take the time off if a woman's husband is not the father of the child? As you remember, what I was saying earlier was you can qualify if you're the husband of the pregnant woman and or you are the father of the child. So there are, there could be occasions where you have a husband who would technically qualify for the right to time off for two appointments, and the father of the child who would have the right to take time off for two appointments. Again, they could both have that time off, but in practice it's highly unlikely that you will have a pregnant woman who will want to be accompanied At those appointments by both men. And um, quite rightly, the guidance says that given that the time off is unpaid and is of a limited duration, it was disproportionate to include such scenarios within the legislation. So I would just say you need to take a common sense approach in this regard. Um, If they meet that criteria, they're one of the qualifying people, then they should be allowed to have that time off. And if you are in any doubt, you could get some advice. That's a rundown of one of the changes that's taking place on the 1st of October 2014. As I said earlier, there are several other changes that you should be aware of and you can find these details in the show notes for this episode at adviceforemployers.co.uk forward slash podcast. Next up is my best practice tip. Now, the purpose of bringing you um, a best practice tip is to give you Um, ways of making your life easier. What I like to focus on when I'm advising employers is actually how to make their life easier, how to reduce costs and risk, and also how to get the best, um, happiest workforce. Because let's face it, if you've got employees, then the part of your business is going to rely on those employees. And if your employees are happy and productive and working well for you then it's going to boost your business and ultimately your bottom line. So that's why I bring you this best practice tip and my best practice tip today is appraisals. Now, I would always suggest that you have some form of appraisal system in your organisation. Many people think of appraisals as being a long, complicated, drawn-out process, which involves lots of long forms and all kinds of criteria and that sort of thing. It really doesn't have to be that encumbersome. There's no um, legislation that sets out how an appraisal should be dealt with. Um, And actually, there's no legislation which says that you have to have an appraisal. Contrary to many employees' popular belief, there's no uh, legal requirement. To have an appraisal. To illustrate why I think appraisals are important is because whenever I have a complaint from an employee, one of the first things that they say to me, along with all of their other issues, is, "I didn't even have an appraisal." employees find appraisals to be an important measure of how they're doing it's an opportunity to obtain feedback and to um, get a a you know judgment of their performance and without having that appraisal many employees feel like they're kind of groping around in the dark they don't really know whether they're doing what they're doing is right whether they um, need to improve or how they can better themselves within your organization so having an appraisal is um, really important for that but it's also important in terms of um, legal risk because if you find yourself in a situation where you have an employee who is underperforming and you've had appraisals with them where you've discussed their performance and how they're doing and that's consistent with what you're saying in terms of your performance management of them then it will make things much easier evidentially if you do decide to go down the route of dismissal or disciplinaries and that sort of thing. So having an appraisal will help you motivate your employees, but it will also help you if you have to use them for evidence later on. What I would suggest in terms of an appraisal is that you have an um, appraisal system which is open and transparent and involves a conversation with your employees over their performance for the year, looking at what they've been required to do, looking at their job description and setting targets for the forthcoming year. Appraisal should also be an honest measure of their performance and shouldn't just be an opportunity to say yes everything's fine and a ticking a box when actually really underneath things are not good. They can also be ways of identifying where the strong members of staff are within your team you might find that somebody has a real passion for a particular area of your business and they don't actually have the opportunity to share that with you at any other time than at their appraisal so having an annual appraisal backed up with regular meetings and reviews and setting clear targets um, and smart targets so specific measurable attainable realistic and timely will ensure that you have the best workforce You don't have to implement an appraisal system yourself. I have an appraisal system that I can provide to you, which sets out exactly what you need to do um, with the forms and how you follow it up and how you deal with things. You could just take those and run with it. Or you could have some specific appraisal training for your managers, which is another thing that I can do for you. Um, This can be delivered either in person, on a one-to-one basis, on a group basis or via a webinar. And as I say, getting your appraisals right can be crucial to the success of your business and the happiness of your staff. So my best practice tip is think about an appraisal. Even if you don't have one now, even if you haven't thought of one before and you thought that it was too encompassing for you, just have a think about it. Perhaps get in touch with me, chat things through and we can talk about how easy it would be to implement that for your staff. Now that brings to a close this week's episode of the podcast. If you are an employer and you listen to this podcast and you've listened to the last few episodes and you're thinking to yourself, oh dear, I don't know where to start. What do I do? There's so much to think about. I've got to run my business. I'm trying to manage the staff and also deal with HR issues. Well, never fear because your friendly employment lawyer is here. I offer a service which will take away those stresses and worries for you. For a monthly payment, you can be sure that you have somebody on the end of the phone to answer your questions, that all of your uh, procedures are in place. And if necessary, I can come into your organisation on a regular basis, either... Uh, physically or virtually, and provide you with support so that you don't have to worry about those issues. This service is called Empirical Support and you can find details at adviceforemployers.co.uk forward slash HR support. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you have enjoyed what you've heard, then please leave me a review in iTunes and Stitcher and go over to my website adviceforemployers.co.uk for more vital information about employment